This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show. I'm very excited to be here again with you. Of course, my name is Matthew Rushing and I'm joined by the illustrious Dan Gunther from, well, our friends from the north in Canada. How's it going there, Dan? Oh, not too bad, Matthew. Happy to be here. Uh, I have to admit it is getting a little cold out there, so, you know, the stereotypes about Canada are kind of holding true. September comes, and yeah, it's getting towards winter now. You know, that's not really such a bad thing, though. I mean, I, I personally really enjoy the winter time and, and the chill in the air, especially fall of pumpkin spice lattes come out at Starbucks. <laughs> so, I mean, how could you... How could you not like that? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, the memes all over Facebook right now with Ned Stark, you know, with his sword, you know, brace yourself, pumpkin spice, everything is coming. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. It is pretty much pumpkin spice, everything coming. So definitely not complaining, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me either. Well, I'm excited because, um, you know, last week we did not get the opportunity to talk about uh, Star Trek Green Lantern 3. And uh, Star Trek Ongoing also came out today. Uh, we are actually going to leave that till next week to give everybody time a chance to read it. But also for us, uh, we are going to be interviewing Kirsten Beyer tonight. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, we have more time for the interview and a little less time for us just prattling on about comics and yada, yada, yada. But I wasn't really excited, Dan, to get to Green Lantern 3 with you. And I wanted to know what you thought as the Spectrum War really ramps up big time in this issue. Well, I do have to say it's kind of at this point, you know, the story is leaving me me behind just a little bit because of my lack of familiarity with the Green Lantern universe. Uh, but with that said, they do a really good job of kind of explaining some of the lore and the backstory so that I don't feel too lost while I'm reading this. But it, it definitely... I. I would feel like that I would be better served if I knew more about Hal Jordan and this whole universe. Uh, but that said, I really am enjoying it. It's a, been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, I thought it was a really good idea to finally actually kind of answer some of the questions, you know, about how Hal Jordan and the rest of the, you know, Lantern Corps gets here, you know, with these these different rings and, you know, exactly what these rings are and, what their properties are and all of that, I thought that was really interesting. And again, I think what makes this really special is that, you know, it's not just a story revolving around Kirk and the Enterprise and, and what's going on with them. 
it's a galaxy spanning story, you know, mm-hmm. with the Gorn involved, the Romulans involved, the Klingons involved. I mean, everyone is involved here. And then, of course, the Federation is involved as well. So mm-hmm. uh, there's so much going on here. And I, that's the thing that I'm really loving about it because it feels epic. You know, like you said, Dan, you you know that there's some things that you're kind of missing. But at the mm-hmm. same time... It's hard to miss just how epic this is. <laughs> no, it's very true. And I mean, not only is it, you know, spanning, you know, all these empires in, of Star Trek, you can really tell like it's coming to a head. Something big is happening. There's going to be some pretty big showdowns down the road. And, you know, while this is a lot of setup, it feels like good setup. Like it feels like this is going to pay off in a really big way. And, for all of my lack of knowledge about this universe and all of that, it, I'm still really looking forward to seeing how all this all plays out. I think one of the things that I, I really do like about this as well is that I'm going to give a spoiler word here because if you haven't read this, I'm going to talk about the very end of this issue. So another person shows up there uh, in front of the Enterprise carrying another lantern and her name is Carol. And it seems as though something really big has happened. She says Necron made it through. And at the very end of this, across the Alpha Quadrant, they say, at the former location of the Vulcan homeworld, and you just hear the, you can just hear almost like the Emperor from Star Wars being, rise. And <laughs> it looks like, is Vulcan going to come back in this miniseries? Like, are they bringing Vulcan back somehow? It kind of looks like it. If if not Vulcan, then yeah, something, you know, some kind of base of operations, I'm assuming, for this uh, Necron. Definitely doesn't sound like a good guy. Uh, <laughs> I've kind of figured that out. Uh, but yeah, no, this is this is pretty cool. I, I love that last kind of splash page, the... You know, the different panels showing this the rocks coming together to form, yeah, what looks like a planet where Vulcan used to be. So out of the ashes of Vulcan, they're, he's making something. So looks pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have to say it, it is, you know, this is a miniseries. I don't think it's obviously going to be connected with the entire continuity that they've been doing with the rest of the, the new Trek jj series here Mm. uh, that's been going on the ongoing issues but the fact that they're just doing something this big and bold and giving you this great cliffhanger it just makes me want to know what's going to happen at the end there Mm -hmm. i really really love that so you know i think that this right now as you said the setup just keeps continuing and it just keeps upping the stakes and I can't wait to see how it's going to resolve itself now as, you know, the next couple issues uh, bring that to a conclusion. So yeah. this is a strong, for me, a strong series, and I, I can't wait to see kind of where they end up actually bringing it as uh, everything hopefully comes to fruition and gives us a nice resolution to the story, one that feels as epic as the setup has been so far. Mm-hmm. Also, I do have to say it was really cool <laughs> to see 
uh, Commodore Decker in the Constellation. I remember when it first showed up, I was like, oh, the Constellation Decker, that's cool. Oh, no, there he goes. Okay, well, that was cool. <laughs> He's just gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the way that they, they kind of pay homage, you know, to the original series there. And yeah, uh, they they give their lives again. So uh, he <laughs> doesn't really get a chance at, at uh, any further storylines unfortunately so uh, you kind of almost feel better for the decker of this reality because he was able to go down with his ship and crew and not sit there while they all died this time around <laughs> he's probably a little more at peace than he was in the prime universe yeah no i completely agree with you so it is pretty awesome um <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm so glad you know that this series has been happening. I think it's successful so far, so I, I really enjoy it, and I can't wait to see it continue. Uh, before we jump into the interview with Kirsten Beyer, just want to remind you that Literary Treks is part of the Trek FM network, and that network has 20 different shows on it, as well as some special feeds you can check out. We'd love for you to go over to iTunes.com slash Trek FM and see all of the shows that we have there in iTunes. And In fact, we're a feature provider there, in iTunes, and we're very proud to be so. Of course, you can find all of our shows as well on our website at trek.fm, all the show pages and all the things we have there for you. Great place to visit. If you're not in iTunes and you're not an Apple user, well, don't worry, we have you covered. You can find all the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course on the website at trek.fm, we have the MP3 file. So you can just stream it, you can download it, you can get the RSS link, put it into any podcatcher. So we really do have you covered. You can find us at trek.fm on Twitter, and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And if you'd like to get in touch with us and leave us a comment about anything here on Literary Treks, we'd love to hear from you about the books you're reading, the things that you're really enjoying, maybe something you'd like to see us cover. Go to trek.fm slash contact. We'd love to hear from you guys. We love getting mail from you. And I uh, can't wait to hear uh, your thoughts on what's going on here on Literary Treks. And then, of course, uh, something really special, Dan, that we have for everyone here that doesn't happen everywhere else obviously is we have our goodreads group tell everybody about that well yeah matthew on uh goodreads we have a special group set aside just for listeners of this podcast and it's really unique it's you can go in there and check out what books we've read what books we will be reading in the new, near future and follow along that way with the, sh the episodes that we're doing. So if you see that we're reading the next book in the Deep Space Nine relaunch, for example, you might want to jump ahead of us a little bit, give, give that a good read, and then uh, listen to the episode. And you'll get a lot more out of the shows that way, and plus be able to keep up with all, everything that we're reading from week to week. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and what's great there, too, we got some great discussions going on with uh, things that people are reading, and it's not just Trek, so we've got some threads there where you can just the Reading Now thread, and people mention what they're reading, so you may just find some good books, and plus, Goodreads is a great way to keep track of the books that you already read yourself, and so I love that um, application. You can put it on your phone, you, you know, you can have it on the computer, it's everywhere, goes with you so you always know what you want to read what you are reading and now you can stay in touch with literary treks and what we're reading so just go to goodreads.com you can search for us in the groups as literary treks or you can go to any of our show pages at trek.fm and just hit the link there for goodreads and it'll take you right to our group and then of course uh, 
Don't forget, we have the Babel Conference, which is the listeners-only discussion group on Facebook for only listeners of Trek FM. That's the only people who know about the group. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook or click discussion on the menu bar of any of our show pages at trek.fm. Well, Dan, I think it's time we just jump right into our interview with Kirsten Beyer. Well, in the words of Captain Janeway, do it. Dan, I was thinking back the other day and I was reminiscing about literary treks and kind of when we started. And I realized that it was over three years ago. And in fact, in November, we'll be going on our fourth year of literary treks, which is it's astounding. Wow. It, it does not seem like it's been that long. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I know. Um, I also realized that our, our guest tonight was the second person that we ever had on the show. She was the second interview I ever did for anything this big and the second show that we did. And I am so excited to welcome back to Literary Treks, Kirsten Beyer. Hello. Really, really <laughs> happy to have you on the show. <laughs> Hello there. Oh, Best uh, yes. intro ever. <laughs> Darling, you're looking fabulous. Sorry. <laughs> oh gosh, you that I I felt like I was in a great 1940s movie there for a second. Um, <laughs> the only time I felt like bogey in my life. But so I, swear, I appreciate so, that. Like I don't know, it's been a while. I won't say how many years, but a number of years ago, I did a production of a play called The Hot House by Harold mm-hmm. Pinter, and oh, the character nice. I was playing uh, was very stylized and very of that era. And there was actually a moment when I walked on stage, door opened, and I was like. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so you have plenty of practice with that. I did. I did. Yeah, I pulled that out from out of nowhere. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited because, you know, this is a big book for you. Yeah. Um, you know, Atonement is wrapping up a trilogy that you started in Protectors. Mm-hmm. And, but not only that, Dan and I were talking before you came on the phone, the fact that not only is this wrapping up that trilogy, but there had been some dangling threads, some hanging chads, yep. to put it in political terms, yep. uh, that, that you were that. having, yeah, you <laughs> having to wrap all that together. And so you've got a lot of puzzle pieces out there. Mm-hmm. Talk about putting all of those together in one book so you kind of finish off this storyline but also kind of set for the future because that's a lot to do that's a tall order (laughs) yes it is um and it's it's way harder than i thought it was going to be i mean in some cases you know in some cases you do that with every book right it seems like there are always things that are left unresolved, um, but you're hoping that at least the main, you know, thrust of the story that you've begun in that story, is, you know, that much is told. But there are always ways we can go further. But with this project, with all three books, I had to sort of live with the fact that as much as I was definitely going to resolve certain things in each story, it was going to have to have a sense of at the end, everything kind of coming together. And there were certain storylines where I knew exactly how that was going to work, and it was just a matter of getting it done. Um, And then there were others that really did sort of come to me organically in the writing of the manuscript, you know. Um, So it's – I wish I could say it was like all planned out and, you know, it just sort of everything goes that way. But in this book, 
more so than any book I've ever written. Um, even the Eternal Tide, which was the last one that I really felt like was a bear that was going to kill me. Um, <laughs> the uh, this one this one was was harder to write than anything else I've ever written, and I don't I don't think it's just because of the need to wrap up the things that I knew I was going to sort of end. It was just the amount of time that all of that took, you know, and the fact that a lot of the things that I had established had the potential to be way bigger. You know, we could do an entire book on a trial of Catherine Janeway and everything that Voyager did for the first seven years they were in the Delta Quadrant. That would not be hard at all. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, Even though, like in my initial outlines for the project, the trial took up like two thirds of the book. Um, and what I realized as I finally started writing the manuscript was that, um, I could do that or I could write all the other stuff that I wanted to write and I couldn't do both. So uh, on the fly, there was a lot of reworking and massaging and cutting and twisting and so yeah, that was hard. But yeah, that's what in the film industry we call movie magic, but (laughs) here it was, I think it's Microsoft Office magic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, apparently in writing, we don't lie about it. Yeah. (laughs) It sucks, okay? (laughs) If there's magic that can fix that, I want some. I think David Mack calls that scotch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, I remember uh, coming into this story, I, I was kind of expecting that story like the the retrospective about Voyager's seven years and all the mistakes that, that Janeway had made or all the perceived mistakes she'd made. And yeah, when the story didn't turn out to be that, I have to admit, I was I was very pleasantly surprised by the, the directions the story took, kind of veering away from that. Yeah. Well, part of it too, though, did, did make sense to me just in terms of Janeway as a character. I mean, I'm rediscovering her as I'm doing this, and I've only had her for three books now, really. And um, as much as I felt like we could have gone a different way, it, it also felt completely right to me that she would just go, yeah, I'm not even going to bother with this. <laughs> this is not the point at all. Um, so I was relieved, you know. Yeah, it, it when, felt when very Janeway for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I actually got that sense too just because I felt like you had dealt with a lot of that with the eternal tide Mm -hmm. and then in protectors with, you know, allowing Janeway herself to grow. And so we all know that she's grown. And I feel like if you had done the trial, it's like, it's, it's, that's really a way to show Janeway's growth, but you had already done that. And so you had actually freed yourself to tell this other story, which I got to say, I mean, there's so much going on in this book. It's awesome because <laughs> there's there's no page where I'm like, oh, this is – I can tell a writer is fluffing it. Like yeah, no. you had no room for that. There so it's not, all yeah, no. just mm-hmm. – yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I don't like to think of it as, you know, fluffing so much as sort of searching maybe for what I'm really mm-hmm. going for. But, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, no, there was absolutely not a moment to be spared. You were able to work – out some creation here of a, a really interesting race. The and Tell me if the Syrian, yeah. uh, yes, and them as well as the Katomic space mm-hmm. and kind of how that worked with Seven and Axum and which I, I hope you don't 
take this as a not a compliment, but it reminded me of midichlorians and kind of a force vision and how all this was working. And uh-huh. like talk about creating those races because it's definitely some of the most Star Trekky awesome stuff that we I've seen in a long time just a, as race creation. Oh wow, thank you. Um, well, you know the first the first thing is is that when I think about the folks that we're going to be up against. Um, our villains of the piece, so to speak. I never really permit myself the luxury of thinking about them as villains, right? Um, Because it leads very quickly into mustache twirling and, you know, um, sort of one-dimensional kind of thinking. I always look for ways to make them right from their point of view. So um, even though they're not always telling the truth and they're not always you know, acting in ways that um, we recognize as, you know, positive or helpful. Um, I try to make them stay true to their own organic sense of what they want and what they need and what they're willing to do to get it and how far they stray beyond their own sort of bounds, whatever their internal sense of conscience is or conscience is. Um, so with the Syriarine, um, you know, when you talk about a species that has lived that long, even before they were all uh, imprisoned, um, you know, there's no way these guys are dumb and mm-hmm. there's no reason for them to necessarily be just like hardcore, you know, evil from the get go. I think that, you know, I took it from the position that they honestly believed that, that they were right, that, that what they had to bring to the table in terms of bringing order to their portion of the galaxy, um, that they felt that that would be genuinely helpful and that ultimately everybody would sort of come around to it. Um, and so from there, that gives you the freedom to sort of, you know, just go deeper with them and let them be more sort of fully fleshed out living, breathing entities. And then to also to have conflict among them, you know, just, it it was interesting to play the Imam or Kashuk character against the, uh, Lysia or, you know, Megan character, Mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, they both wanted the same thing, but. Um, he was way more impatient to get there, you know? So, um, so that's sort of the general approach that I take to it. You know, they're just, they have to be more complicated than just they're bad and we're going to stop them. You know what I'm saying? Well, that makes it much more interesting too, because as, um, an old friend of mine, I like to call him Obi-Wan said, you know, (laughs) it's true from a certain point of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're talking about villains, they usually do have a point of view that they think they're right from, and that makes for much more compelling drama, even if they're still wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Confederacy here. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're still in the wrong, but it's it's just so much more enjoyable because there's more tension than, sure. like you said, the mustache. <laughs> I've got yeah, exactly. you now. Exactly. <laughs> You know, and the, the heart, but the hardest one in this particular story to um, work myself out of that trap with was actually the commander. I mean, the Confederacy, I had plenty of time to sort of set up their history and their motivations so that it, it could be clear to the reader why they had made the choices they made and why they were doing the things that they did and how they could believe they were justified in that. And I also took a fair amount of time in this book with the Syriarene doing the same thing. Um, but I'd never had as much time with the commander. Um, 
partially because when I was working in that storyline, I was always way more interested in Tom and Seven and, you know, Axum yeah. and Riley and everybody else. So, you know, by the time I get to wrapping him up, he hasn't actually had all that much screen time, really. Um, and I had known his story. I knew why he was doing what he was doing in terms of trying to um, understand the nature of KTOMs and KTOMic programming. Um, I knew that from protectors. I knew that all the way back in the beginning. Um, but, you know, it's sort of it's unfortunate to sort of end it up with the big info dump at the end. Mm-hmm. That's not my favorite choice. And I'm sort of unsatisfied that that's the way this particular one worked out. But, you know, I think I did 15 other things right. So, you know. <laughs> You know, I I do want to say though I I really don't feel like it felt like that as as much as I think you th- may have think it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I what I loved about that end scene is that you were really doing that whole classic sting operation, right? And I I just I mean that's a nice literary motif, mm-hmm. and and there's nothing wrong with using it. And I felt like you were doing everything else right with the storyline that. Yeah. I was okay with you using the motif that we're familiar with yeah. because at that point I almost didn't know how they were going to beat this commander. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you really did have me going, I, I, and who knew, you know, Julia Paris saved the day. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> which well, was great heart, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was all, I mean uh, that, oh gosh, that whole story with her and Tom, you had me choking up. Thanks Aww. Kirsten. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, two, two uh, books in a row for me kind of choking yeah. up at, at things going on between those two, <laughs> but for completely yeah. different reasons. It was really great. Yeah. There were so many readers who were unhappy with Julia at the end of the acts of contrition. And I totally understood why. And it actually made me very nervous about whether or not they would accept where I knew I was going with her in this book. Um, because, you know, to me, again, she's a, she's a fully fleshed out living person in my brain somewhere. And even though we saw her at her absolute worst in acts of contrition, it was not hard for me to imagine at all that under the right set of circumstances that with her perspective shifted enough, she would realize how completely, you know, she had screwed up and would Mm -hmm. want to fix it. Well, and what was so nice about it is you actually did this nice mirroring between Julia and, you know, President Bacco and Akar, mm-hmm. you know, them both need to be able to be confronted with the actual evidence of what's happening. One right. for Julia with her son and the other two with the evidence about what's been going on under their nose. Right. So, yeah, I, I liked that. I thought it worked really well. Thank you. Well, it also helps, I think, that we've had a number of other books exploring Bacco and Akar, um, yes. but really Bacco. So that it didn't feel like a cheat to me to operate under the assumption that this was something she truly wouldn't have any direct knowledge about at this stage in the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like one of those big earth-shattering, you know, there's people are dying and whatever. And, of course, she knew about that. But the nitty-gritty details of who's running the show and exactly what they're doing would never have come across her desk. Because we know from other stories how many other things she's doing all day long. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> and I sort of feel like without without that backstory existing for the readers who are really into the whole universe, um, it might have been harder to buy. But in this, you know, but but because of all that stuff I had, it was, you know, no, it's true. She just didn't know. It's a big federation. <laughs> it is. And she, yeah, she's a busy lady, you know, as yeah. is a car. Oh, uh, the the two of them being there, and, and, and I think that got me a little misty just having her back yeah. as well. I mean, yeah. 
made me miss her so much because, I mean, gosh, if there's anybody that you kind of think, okay, back over president, okay, let's right. let's, let's be honest, um, she's she's fantastic. I mean, she is the every person that you want to be president, mm-hmm. you know, who just speaks her mind and knows what she's talking about. So, mm-hmm. and her heart is always in the right place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. and she's never seemed to let the trappings of power change um, the essentials of you know who she is as a person. You know, it, it, it did not, it, I did not doubt for one moment that if somebody said to her, seven has a problem, she'd fix it instantly, no matter what else was going mm-hmm. on. Right. Because of all seven had done for her. Yeah, Nan Bako has always really been one of my favorite characters. And I do also have to say, one of my other absolute favorite characters is Garrick. And yeah. The, mm, yes. What was it like kind of getting the chance to write both of those characters in this novel? Because I, you know, I just love whenever they come on the page and, uh, I just must have been a thrill to be able to write them. Oh, my God, it totally was. Um, but it's also <laughs> terrifying, you know, um, because while I have seen all of Deep Space Nine and I have read many of the books, um, you know, I had to go back and rewatch some very specific Garrick episodes. I got in touch with Una once I knew I was going to include that scene. And I was already reading A Stitch in Time, which I had never read before um, and was fantastic. Um but I was like, you know, anything you want to point me to that you think I should look at, please feel free. And so she sent me some excerpts from some of the books that she had written with Garrick and some of her scenes. And then she sent me a list of episodes to rewatch, and I did. And so I felt like I had his voice pretty clear in my head when the time came. What's interesting, though, I mean, I sort of have, have developed this nice little thing, at, at least through these books, of having these, these uh, kind of neat um, cameo appearances by other very famous figures from Mm -hmm. the universe, but not necessarily from Voyager. Um, And those scenes have always been approached with the same amount of caution and absolute tender care. But in this particular story, it didn't occur to me to use Garrick necessarily. It was actually my editor, Margaret, who made that suggestion. We knew we were going to use the embassy and we were, you know, talking about ways in which um, that could be, you know, messed up for Tom and, and Seven. And she was like, oh, Garrick. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, but oh, my God, I have to write him. Oh, my God. You know, it was like, yes, that's right, but uh, can I do that? You know, um, but then I did my homework, and it ended up being so much fun. To write. And that, that was that was a scene that happened very quickly and, you know, didn't require a ton of revision or anything. It was just sort of, it just sort of all happened. But it was, yeah, that was great. That was great fun. And I love him. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's and I understand, you know, uh, after having talked to Una and obviously doing the orb with Chris, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time, you know, Garrick is just one of those characters. He's on the show for 20 uh, or about 20 episodes, mm-hmm. which is amazing because you always think of Garrick always being there. Yes, and that's the impact of that character and how good he was and how well he was written. Mm-hmm. So, and how well and he, he really. Yes, yes. Yeah. Andrew Robinson was just fantastic, yep. you know. And then, of course, his daughter was in The Visitor, and she was amazing as well. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that's really special is you're, you're right. You know, the Picard cameo you had was, was so well done, I thought. I, I just love that. Um, I kind of am waiting for you to be able to do the massive David Mack-style series where you bring all these people together <laughs> and you just get Don't to play with them. Please. Can, can, you, can we just get... Can we just get Kirsten Beyer to do Trek Infinity? Not Disney Infinity, but Trek Infinity, <laughs> where all the characters get to play with each other in the play box? Do you have any idea how much time that would take? <laughs> I, I, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I already know the the predilection for um, you know certain truck riders to have massive flow charts and stuff, so yeah. they know where things are going. So, yeah, I can't even imagine. One of the things that uh, talking about characters, and I wanted to ask you because you've been doing it a while now, writing Voyager yeah. and the characters for so long, and and obviously you've spent so much time watching the show. Uh, who are the ones after doing this for so long, being inside their heads, them being inside your head? Do you f- feel like you have or see most of yourself in? And what have been some of the m- more rewarding arcs for you to be able to write? And the reason I was thinking this was because reading this book and the way Janeway was reacting to things, I thought, I wonder how old Janeway might have reacted yeah. instead of, you know, reborn Janeway. Yeah. And. And, and so it made me think, I bet Kirsten just has just a ton of information about how much these characters are changed and, you know, how she relates to them. Yeah, it's not, that's not something, that's not the kind of thing that I can, like, write down, though. Do you know what I mean? And, like, make mm-hmm. notes for myself to go back. The only way that I find that stuff is literally by reviewing what I've already done. Um, like, I have to go back and I have to read sections of books mm-hmm. um, if I ever sort of hit a point where... I'm running into trouble or I sort of rely on this sort of internal bullshit detector that I have where a lot of times I will have planned something in an outline and then I'll get to the actual writing of a scene and what I had planned to sort of end a scene or be the big revelation or whatever just falls completely flat when I finally do it and then I have to look Mm -hmm. deeper and sometimes those scenes will take days, you know. Uh, which is always scary because I tend to write on very strict, you know, deadlines. And, and so I need to finish certain scenes at certain days to get on with it. And when a scene, like, just stops me dead in its tracks, it's like, oh. But most of that stuff I just sort of find by not letting myself off the hook until I'm emotionally satisfied with where we are. And only then can mm-hmm. I kind of move on, you know. As far as this, the arcs, though, that I relate most closely to, Janeway, I'm about to say all the women. I mean, Janeway is certainly one. Not that I'm at the same place in my life quite yet where Mm -hmm. she is. She's several years ahead of me, so a lot of this is me sort of projecting my best guesses. Yeah, I mean, her whole uh, struggle to figure out what's really hers to worry about and what she needs to let go of uh, is something that as you know, my own little control freak personality has struggled with over my whole life. Um, because when you, when you do feel responsible for other people and other things, and when you are pretty good at solving problems, uh, you tend to not look outside for help as much as you need to. Um, and, you know, with Janeway, it, and I think this is true of me too, it takes something seriously crashing and burning where you get to a point where you mm. literally don't know where to go, that, before you sort of reach out. And then, you know, usually the answers are pretty near at hand. You've, they've been there kind of all along. You just have to open your eyes and see them. So uh, so the other one is Belana, which some of which has to do with the fact that she's, you know, a new mother and so am I. Um, yes. And uh, morale is aging more slowly than my child, uh, which is nice because now I can sort of look back and go, oh, I know what's coming now. <laughs> um, with Belana, it's more that sense of, Here's somebody who is incredibly capable and incredibly passionate and incredibly driven and now literally has more things in front of her to deal with than any one person possibly can, and yet she too is unaccustomed to asking for help. 
So she keeps just trying to keep all the plates spinning and things start falling down. And instead of recognizing that that's just, you know, the way it works, you're doing too much. She turns in and blames herself and thinks she's, you know, there's something wrong with her. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, there's that. (sighs) I'm not really sure who else at this point in time. I mean, all of them in ways. Obviously, you know, a lot of Chakotay's experiences in terms of grief and pulling himself out of that are just directly connected to my own experiences of grief and loss, which started when I was 22 um, with my dad's death. In some ways, I think the Tom and Julia thing as well, um, not that their particular circumstances mirror anything in mine in any way, shape or form, but just that sense of reaching a point in your life where you are you you look at the 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 generation that raised you and go wow we really honestly and truly don't see things the same way anymore what are we going to mm, do about yeah. that because mm-hmm. part of me you know feels that the choices that you are making now are so toxic that it would be in everybody's best interest for me to just step outside of our this relationship but your family so I can't do that so how are we going to you know find a way to come to some sort of a peaceful way to continue to be together, even though there are these areas where we so passionately disagree. You know, there's just, there's something about family that makes those issues just compounded in a way that nothing else does. You know, having the same thing with my dad left, uh, I was in college and, you know, he, he left for somebody else, you know, Mm -hmm. he left our family. So, Mm -hmm. um, it was a rough thing and it's still there today. So, Mm um, that's, what I loved about the storylines that you've been telling in Voyager is how very personal they are for all the characters. You mm-hmm. know, um, we really are diving into characters. And, and not to be somebody who just knocks Voyager, but honestly, if you look at what you learned about those characters and the depth you had by the end of season seven, yeah. it just wasn't where it should have been. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love that you've taken on that mantle of saying, no, 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 these are great characters. Let me show you. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me show you how good they are. And, and yeah. um, I wanted to ask quickly to kind of bring you back to Bolana because I thought that this was a really interesting story. And it's a very touchy subject yeah. about women and, and work and family. Right. And, you know, how hard was it for you? And I know you're you know, you're a working mom, you work, you have kids. Talk about writing that a little bit and and how important it was for you to be able to say, it's okay to ask for help. Because I I loved that whole thing, like people in this book having to learn, not just the women, but the guys too, you know. Yeah. It's okay to be the person who needs to say, I need help. Because you know what? We all need help sometimes. From the Mm -hmm. doctor to, you know, Dr. Cambridge Mm -hmm. (laughs) needing another doctor uh, to to speak into his life. I mean, all these people, they all need each other. And that's why we're all here and we're in it together. Yeah. Well, that really is the bottom line, you know. And and I think it's particularly uh, difficult with this group of characters because in some ways you're looking at folks who literally are the brightest and the best, right? So um, in some ways we need them not to have feet of clay. We need them to be so much better and stronger than we are so that we have something to shoot for. But treating them that way for me just limits our ability, I think, to connect in ways that I find ultimately unsatisfying. You can still tell really fun Star Trek stories without 
going anywhere near the kind of depth of character that I that I teams keep you know working toward because the universe is simply so rich and there are so many different things you can explore and all the fun toys that we have to play with make it very very easy to um, to let all this stuff go a lot more shallow for me there really is no other point to this in some ways um, all of the sort of window dressing is always going to be there the ships the action the the guns you know all that stuff is is too much baked into the cake to ever pretend that it's not along with the exploration yeah. and the discovery <laughs> of new things and the sense of awe and wonder and all of that but what carries me through these stories every single time is how the, these characters are reacting to all of these things that they're discovering. Their personal take on this experience is what I'm always looking for, not just that it happened to them and that they moved on. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and with Bellana in particular, I just, you know, I, I, I don't think I ever intended when I started this to explore this particular subject in quite the way that I have. I think if I had sort of told, like if older me had told myself this is where I was going, I probably would have been too scared uh, from the beginning to do that because it is such a touchy subject, this issue of work-life balance and men and women and are there differences because women are the ones who have children. And, you know, I mean, my life is, in my life, I am surrounded by a number of incredibly high-powered women uh, who have children and who have made every different choice you can possibly make about um, child care and how much they're going to pursue their own careers and how much they're going to let go of their careers in the name of their children and all of that kind of stuff. And I have made my own personal choice um, because it's the only thing that works for me, which is to be my child's primary caregiver and to be incredibly present in her life uh, in ways that a lot of women either don't get to or simply don't. Um, mm. And I have no interest in judging or comparing or saying one way is right or one way is wrong. I only know what I feel like I have to do. And so as I have followed Bellana through this journey, what I have been searching for is what she would honestly feel she would have to do. Do you know what I'm saying? And mm, I yeah. and in, and while in some ways the story that sort of started all of this with her going back to Boris and choosing to go look for her mother um, was not something that I would ever have done. In a lot of ways, that has kind of served me well because it was a nice sort of sharp dividing line. The the sort mm. of this sort of um, letting go of who she thought she was, who she thought her mom thought she was, who anybody else thought she was, and allowing her the space now to become who she is with her new given set of circumstances, married with one child and now, you know, another one on the way. So mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of... No, I, I, I think that that's an amazing answer and, and, and really the best one you can give and, and to say, look, this is this is what... I'm doing but this is also how I feel after spending time with this character for so long what they're going through and and that's all I think you can ask of any writer um and you know having read all of you know your Voyager books we know how much time you've poured into these characters so I have no doubt that that's where Bellana is and I loved that that's where she is you know um because it is a is a part of her character growth you know um Mm -hmm. and I I really loved her and Tom kind of almost being each other's like um cheerleader uh-huh. even when they weren't there. You know, they could hear that that person in their head and and I you know the the 
a picture of a beautiful marriage like that that can be contentious, they can have their fights, but they really love each other, mm-hmm. uh, that's powerful in today's world. So yeah. I, I really appreciate that. And it's, yeah, it's awesome. It was funny. I, there was, it was a while back. I think, I don't know if it was Protectors or Acts of Contrition, but somebody wrote a review where they literally said that, you know, they enjoyed the characters or whatever, but they just didn't think I had any idea what a marriage was really like. <laughs> and I was like, wow, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just, and I assume they were referring to Tom and Bellana. I think, I don't even remember, but I was just, I remember being struck by that. Like, ooh, there mm. must be a lot of very different relationships out there then. Yeah. There's yeah, as many different are. kinds of marriages there are people, I think. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Yep. Because it, no two are alike. It's just the way it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Chakotay and, and Janeway and, and where they're coming to in that relationship? Because a part of me was was so interested to watch that they had kind of switched places in some way that like I, I almost felt like that Chakotay was more old Janeway-like. Yep. And Janeway was more old Chakotay-like. Yep. And this role reversal that they have. So can you talk about how they've kind of come to where they are? And then they seem to have come to a good place by the end of the book. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, In the first place, I didn't do that consciously in the sense of, oh, I know, I'll make them, you know. All of it is the same in that they start wherever they start and then things happen and they react the only way I can feel them organically reacting in that moment. So I think if they had had more time after she first came back. Um, Mm -hmm. And even after she came back in protectors uh, where everything wasn't going to hell in a handbag around them, their story would be quite different. Um, I think that they would have had more of an opportunity to truly enjoy one another again, to sort of, to sort of relish the fact that they actually get to be together now when she was dead. (laughs) That was never going to happen. You know? Um, (laughs) Yeah. You were dead. um, you know, there's a part of me that is always like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to just let them, you know, enjoy this? But then all this stuff keeps happening. And when it does, it, I think the the only true way that I can possibly figure out to approach this is to look at each character and to look at the tools that they have in their tool belt to respond to a situation. And as much as we like to think about people growing and changing and learning from the past, in moments of crisis, we don't tend to reach for necessarily the, um, the most amazing insights or certainly the newest things that we have learned. We really do go back to our basic wiring and programming because those are the most familiar things. And in Chakotay's case, even though he learned a whole bunch of stuff when she died, and then he had a whole bunch of new revelations when she came back, and all of that felt very real and true and right for him, um, when faced so soon with the prospect of absolutely losing her, he's not able to sort of use all of that nifty new perspective. Instead, he reverts back to the basic fear and anger and resentment, all of which is still there in the, from the loss. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. While in some ways it was painful to take him back a few steps um, to uh, a place where he's less the, you know, night, in shining armor on the big white horse who seems to have all of the answers. It still felt like the, the only choice that we could possibly make. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
so when you bring two characters together who a lot of people have wanted to see together, there's, there's always the danger that it's going to get stale very quickly. It's like the tension gets released and all the air goes out of the balloon. And then, you know, what do you do from there? And um, I'm just sort of looking for ways to, as gently as I can, keep these guys honest. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because just because they're madly in love with each other and just because they both really want to spend the rest of their lives together, that doesn't mean that they're going to agree about the best course of action, you know, on everything that that um, comes you know, before them, they're each still going to respond from their particular perspectives and their particular wants and needs. You know, in Janeway's case, she is much more big picture girl now in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And really, I think at a place of peace that goes beyond most everybody else, just by the nature of what she has experienced, you know, you just can't take away the whole dying, everything that happened to her in the Q continuum. And then coming back to life, and the first thing that happens is the Omega crisis. I mean, all that stuff was just so huge. And then uh, to have been home and to have stepped back and to have found a sort of sense of peace. I mean, I I kind of feel like Janeway is in a place now where it almost doesn't matter what happens to her. She's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. It's like she's already seen the worst ten times over. So what else she got? You know, death becomes her, you know, whereas, yeah, <laughs> whereas um, for all that Chakotay has made huge strides um, and faced his you know, own potential death and stuff like that, you can't compare their experiences. So uh, I'm very comfortable with the idea that it will take them a while to get onto the same page and that even once they're on that page, they're going to keep falling off of it from time to time, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but but you shouldn't question what's underneath it, that the, that the love is there, oh, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, well, Kathy and Coco are a Beach Boys song. Wouldn't it be nice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I just actually, just kind of a little side, uh, speaking of what we've been talking about here, it occurs to me after the events of these last few novels, I can't honestly think of a group of people that need shore leave more than these people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering if we'll see a little bit of, uh, of kind of not downtime, I guess, but, uh, maybe a little bit lighter go of things for yeah, some okay, of them so with the emotional happens. stuff. Okay, so, because I've already written the next book, right. And I'm working on the one after that right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, what you just talked about this idea that if there ever was a group of people who needed some downtime. Yeah. That's actually the story I'm working on right now. Oh, right now. In oh, some nice. ways, I think, I intended A Pocket Full of Lies to be that story. Like, as I was initially formulating it, um, I absolutely shared that sense of, you know, um, uh, fatigue with just, you know, the the angst and the darkness and all that kind of stuff. But it turned out that that was absolutely not the story that I could um, explore any of that with. Um, The sort of central conceit or the idea that drove pocket full of lies was by its nature so heavy that everything around it ended up being, you know, pretty damn dark. That said, the next one, the one that I'm working on now, I am 100% committed to going a very different direction for, for partially for the sake of the readers and just thought, oh my God. But, um, but also for me, I mean, I need to, I need to remind myself 
about that thing that gets people into Starfleet in the first place, which is the mm-hmm. awe and the wonder and the exploration, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a really big part of this book that is about truth mm-hmm. and uh, the way that the truth affects everything mm-hmm. uh, when we hide it and when it comes to light. Mm-hmm. And almost the idea of the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. And, and I was really interested to see that because, you know, uh, truth is an interesting word these days because it doesn't necessarily mean what it we think it means mm-hmm. for a lot of people anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted you to kind of talk about talking about a, a, a thing that has changed over the course of like, you know, I think I feel like even though just the last 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. the way we view the idea of truth, but having it be such a major part of this story and, and, and such a bedrock of, you know, even um, what I think of is, is like uh, a Federation moral value. Yeah. It's, you know, it, 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 I don't remember if we talked about this during our conversation about acts of contrition. I feel like we might've touched on it. This, this thing that um, made me want to tell this story in particular has everything to do with the fact that in my lifetime of political awareness and world awareness, which is not my whole life, but, you know, right. most of it, um, I have watched in despair this growing divide, not between people who simply value different things, but who now, because of the way our world works because of the technology at our disposal, because of the sheer amount of information that we have access to now, have managed to create uh, certainly two, but even more than two, absolutely different realities where um, we aren't even sharing the same facts anymore. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when we try to communicate with one another and um, bring facts into the conversation, Everybody can go to the Internet and bring up, you know, 50 different things that support their argument. And there's no or very little sort of sense of weighing certain truths or certain people's ideas as better or possibly more right than others. You know, just because 5,000 people will go on the Internet and tell us that climate change isn't real, that doesn't mean that the 97% of scientists who say it is should be, you know, considered the same <laughs> do you know what i'm saying it's mm-hmm. like if you're oh god uh, giving giving equal weight to the two talking heads on screen doesn't necessarily mean that their viewpoints have equal value right. <laughs> but something in the way they are presented to us when they appear on the screen side by side you know and they're the same size something in our animal brains just sort of goes well they're both equal and you know mm-hmm. we may just have to agree to disagree on this but, you know, the fear is that at some point we're going to have to start agreeing to disagree on whether or not water is wet. And, and I just find that terrifying. I don't like living in that world, and I don't like thinking that my daughter is going to grow up in that world. Absolutely. Um, so everything about this story for me was about how are we going to bridge that divide? How are we going to find ways to work together despite the fact that we – have different values and different things that we consider to be more important. Um, so, yeah, truth is definitely part of that. It's interesting, though, that you the the comment that you made about truth, because the um, 
the epigram for the next book is one of the two is the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable. Um, so <laughs> yeah. we're, it's, it's just funny to me that, that this, this whole trilogy has been about one kind of truth in, mm. in a lot of ways, pocket full of lies. It makes it much more personal, but, mm. but is definitely still in that ballpark. So in a, in a really spiritual sense, you know, there's bad news before there's the good news, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, yeah, I really like that. Um, because, and what made this so interesting was this whole kind of idea, you know, we, we, Star Trek, and and I'll be honest, when Star Trek talks about faith, except for usually in Deep Space Nine, Mm -hmm. they tend to set up a straw man that Mm -hmm. they can easily knock down. You know, Mm -hmm. Kirk talks a fake god to death because it's just a robot. Mm -hmm. But that's that's not really talking about religion and and the belief in in a spiritual life in an honest way. And then Deep Space Nine comes along, and it really does. Mm -hmm. But what I loved here was... The way that the, you know the conversation between Maddings and Chicote mm-hmm. of you know Chicote, you know he he calls it the the being, mm-hmm. uh, and he calls it the source. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's very similar to the Bajorans and Starfleet talking about the prophets. It's the wormhole aliens, and it, you know, mm-hmm. and neither one is necessarily said to be right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I really liked that you did that. So I appreciate that as being a person of faith. But I also was really interested to see Janeway talk about this idea of universal beliefs. Yeah. And that is, ooh, that's a touchy subject right there. The idea that there might be some universal standard that all, you know, advanced peoples would hold to because that, yeah, when we're talking, again, we're talking about truth, it, those are all really. I, just, I love that you touched on all these really important issues. And yeah. so. Well, I don't think, understand when I'm. When she's talking about those things, at least from my point of mm-hmm. view, we aren't talking about nitty-gritty things like the mm-hmm. finer point right. of, you know, transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Right. You right. know, I'm reminded of right. the no. lessons that I learned, <laughs> yeah. you know, growing Catholic up school, uh, yeah. as, as Catholic. Um, oh, flashbacks. <laughs> but, but more the, um, the sort of the the much bigger truths, you know, we, m- most of us are on the same page about not killing other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of us are on the same page about men and women, you know, um, having equal rights and equal opportunities and all that kind of stuff. A lot of us are on the same page about them actually getting paid the same to do the same job, you know. There, but yeah, but heck yeah. <laughs> there are, you know, um, those are the kinds of things I was meaning for her to be expressing. Um, mm-hmm. That among most advanced civilizations, if you've made it up to space, you've cracked a lot of scientific codes that give you access to an understanding of the universe that, uh, you know, folks who haven't yet just aren't necessarily going to be expected to have. So that's the kind of thing that that she's going for there, not the idea that the Confederacy is going to turn into the Federation one day necessarily. Uh, you know, I don't think they ever will, just because of where they came from. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's too much to anti- to expect mm-hmm. or to imagine that they might not encounter the Federation and then go, "Hey, maybe we should do some exploring of our own." You know? Right. Yeah. It is tough, though. I mean, just it, it it's the the urge to tie it up in a neat bow and to come down firmly on one side or another is strong. But I just don't think that's helpful either. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it doesn't mm-hmm. really reflect where we are right now. And that's a lot mm-hmm. of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know, it. and Star Trek is, 
is about respect and finding the common ground. Right. And um, it, it's about itic, it down at its core. Um, and, and that's, you know, you are going to have some people that are going to be diametrically opposed and yet still finding the common ground where they can work together. Yeah. And that's that's the beautiful thing about Star Trek. I think that no matter what side of any kind of aisle you're on, mm-hmm. whatever your beliefs, you can still find a way that you want to say, can we find something that we have in common that we can build upon? Yeah, mm-hmm. let's just start with where huge. we agree. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, one thing I was thinking about with regards to the end of this novel was, you know, kind of, and and going back a little bit to what we talked about before about, you know, crisis, crisis after crisis happening, the yeah. ending to this novel felt very positive. And I mean, in many ways, it was a resolution to a lot of the storylines. But it seemed to me many of the characters found themselves in, you know, a relatively good place for the first time in a while. And yeah. even thinking of the doctor, who has obviously lost a lot with regards yeah. to his memories of Seven, he seems to be in a pretty good place with a chance to kind of make a new start with his friend. Yeah. And um, I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about this idea of at one that you bring up at the <laughs> end. And I, I just absolutely loved that, mm. uh, oh, that you. kind of turn of yeah, phrase you there. Yeah, I... Um... Sometimes I struggle with titles. Uh, I never did come up with a title for Protectors. That was Margaret's choice because I just couldn't find it. Um, But from the moment I started working after Protectors, I knew it was acts of contrition and I knew it was atonement. And um, in my brain, I never said at atonement. I always said at one minute. Like that was always Mm -hmm. in my brain for two years when I was working on the project. Um, And I actually never anticipated expressing that anywhere. And I didn't, you know, I, I found the painting in the, the very last moment pretty much as I was writing it. And um, and then it sort of made perfect sense that it was there. But um, it was strange to have had it so present in my mind and then realize where it, where it was supposed to be. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that was just mm-hmm. a bizarre moment in creative life, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, I, atonement in some ways has a connotation to it of, you know, making up for a sin you have committed. But yeah. I don't ever think that that's really the most helpful to look at it. I think in my mind it's always finding the connection, finding the the truth of, of and finding the oneness. And that's very much what everybody did in their own particular way. You know, mm. um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. Beyond that, I'm not quite sure what, what I can say about it. You know, I think that's one of those wonderful things that you added that will mean something a little bit different to each person that reads the story. Mm. Yeah. And that's kind of a, an okay thing, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the wonderful thing about a story and where it can touch you because what you did there with um, all of the character, you know, Julia and Tom, and then and the other place that I was really choking up was Janeway and her sister. And this, mm. you know, she pulls out this painting, and it's just this representation of this is where we were one. Do you yeah. remember? Yeah. And I want to go back there. I I want to make it back to that place with you. And and that's oh god. Um, well, you know, for me, it's it's that, but it's also. A reflection of, I think for me, it's where they are now for Phoebe. 
mm. that mm. that she held on to so much anger for so long about so many things, not the least of which was her sister dying when she wasn't prepared for it. And but I I think that the words of her mother and then the words of Julia Paris mm. and then finally the words of Tom brought her to her own place of realizing where she is, which is, you know, she's out there looking up at the night sky and there is this, this, this person out there who has always been protecting her, whether she acknowledged it or not, you know? I wanted to, to ask you now, you know, you talked a little bit about Pocketful of Lies and what's coming next. Um, for, for Voyager having spent so much time with them, what have just been some of your most favorite things at this point um, that you're just like, I can't believe I got to do this with these characters I love? Mm. Let's see. Um, okay, now I have to put pocket full of lies out of my brain because I was about to say, oh, there's this. Oh, I can't tell you that. Um, <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> oh, so I'm close. So close. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some of my favorite things that I was able to do? Well, okay. Bringing Junior back was mm, absolutely yeah. delicious. Sherrick and the discovery of his character and um, and his his whole journey with Samantha Wildman. Mm, um, that was fun. Was unexpected and, and um, so much fun. Some of Tom's uh, moments, I, I still think back to that scene the, one of the first scenes between him and Frist where he, you know, was way ahead of her. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think it. I think that uh, I'm searching for sort of a common thread in the moments that tend to really move me and, and, and work for me. And, um, you know, they, they tend to be places where people who have had all this potential stuff within them finally sort of step up and take a minute and own it and then perform in such a way that we understand that they've come to sort of a new sense of personal power, personal awareness. I don't know how to explain it, but we see them at their best, you know, in in a lot of ways, actually the last moment between seven and the doctor is one of those moments as Mm -hmm. well. Um, Yeah. It would have been nice in some ways for the doctor to go through this experience with Seven there and not having her there and not having the opportunity for them to talk more as it was all going on kind of bummed me out, you know? It was just sort of the logistics Mm -hmm. of everything, but there were a lot of times where I wanted him to be able to talk to her. And um, just the way that last thing settled with him thinking he had lost everything and it seemed like he had apparently forgotten that there was somebody still alive who still remembered it all, Mm. you know? Um, that's definitely up there too. Yeah. That was, yeah, those are, there's so many good moments like that. that I really love in this, this, this whole series. And I think that you were just, you really just have taps into something with the, the Voyager characters that it's, when these books come around, I'm always excited to read them. And that's a strange thing coming from the DS9 fan. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And that's what I love. And so for you, you've talked a little bit about what's coming next for you. Um, Let everybody know 
you know, what it is that uh, you do have coming up next that you're working on and any other little juicy tidbits that, that you feel like is okay that Margaret wouldn't kill you for sharing with us? Okay, so what's coming next? So the atonement ends the first year of the Delta Quadrant's exploration. So we're going to pick up at the beginning of year two um, with the next book, which is called A Pocket Full of Lies, which comes out in, I think, the end of January of 2016. And as of this moment, I am working on the two books that will follow that. In my head, I'm sort of thinking about uh, season two, even though we're not supposed to call it that, um, <laughs> along similar lines as uh, season one worked, although I'm not 100% sure that I'll be willing to tackle the end of it in quite the massive way with the trilogy that I did mm-hmm. uh, in the first season. I will say that what I have established in Pocket Full of Lies is sort of tantalizing in the sense that the story resolves in such a way that we could very easily just never go back there. Um, but even as I'm writing the next two books that have nothing to do with continuing on in that arc, the rest of that arc is constantly in the back of my brain going, uh-huh, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And I'm like, shut up, I can't do that right now. <laughs> so, um, so I think it's very possible that after... Uh, that the the things that are developed in Pocketful of Lies will have more far-reaching implications mm. should I end up, you know, having a chance to continue on after the, the two that I'm writing now. It's like you're Mr. Burns just going, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little, I guess. And so we're, so we're all your readers right now, too. So. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you guys one thing. Because in, sure. there haven't been uh, reviews on this one have sort of been trickling in. I don't know if it's a weird time of year, but or what necessarily is going on. But it just sort of feels like it's taking a while for people to get to this or get through it or you know whatever. Um, and one thing nobody has commented on that I was sort of like way out on the limb. I felt like when I was writing it um, was the scene with Sherrick and Tom and Sam where he actually tells the story of Shaco and the Walls fell. I remember that. I thought that was really cool. I'm trying to remember the specifics, but I remember thinking that it it really kind of flipped it flipped around my expectations on what that phrase meant or right or what it represented. And I thought that was I remember thinking that was a really cool uh, kind of way to do that. Yeah, no, I I'm I'm with Dan on this because when you think about a story like that, I think you kind of think of that in in a biblical sense of like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho kind of thing, right? And I, I liked that it again it wasn't what I expected. And I liked the time the, the way that you took the time to have him tell the story mm-hmm. just so we could have a little bit deeper understanding of the way that these people's brains work. Right. That they think in in narrative. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I I think that that's a fascinating thing and obviously a whole book of that would be tough for us to take but that yeah. <laughs> little time that you took I was really glad because I felt more connected with that that race and just the whole idea of you know basically like if our lives we we only talked in uh when Luke Skywalker took his lightsaber right. you know you're <laughs> that and, and then that took that had meaning. So I I think that's fantastic. And all the geeks around would nod and go, ah, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's no. hard because yeah, it's it 
there are Star, Star Trek has plenty of sort of iconic moments and phrases and things and Shaka when the walls fell has certainly become one of those. So I remember writing the scene where Sam uses it wrong and he's like, no, 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 I'll tell you that story later. And then I kind of went, oh, that means I'm going to have to tell that story later. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of left uh, it alone and waited to see if I would, you know, if it would come out and then finally it did. And then I was like, ooh, hmm, I wonder if that's going to work. If I've learned anything about you tonight, you keep writing yourself into bigger stories. I do. So it's all your fault. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I we keep reading them, and I think we just reap the benefits. So. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, anything else I can get you guys? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, can, I'll, I'll, I'll take a nice uh, whiskey on the rocks. Yeah, no, I do. Yeah. I, 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 love, I love it when I see reviews where people are like, oh, and I want this to happen, and then I want this to happen, and then I want this to happen, and I'm like... What fries with that shake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, goodness. While you're at it, could you write the pamphlet at the tourist information booth on uh, on the Tamarian homeworld? Because I would I love know. to read that. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> well, and that's that's one of the things that I, you know, any of the trick writers out there, for the most part, it, they're people that I that I've come to trust because of what they produce. And, you know, uh, you being given Voyager and having produced so many books that I have been happy with, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have to have that, oh, I want to see this, because I already know Kirsten's like 12 steps ahead of me, <laughs> and what she's going to give me, I'm, I'm going to be okay with. And, and I have to say, you know, with any tie-in fiction, to, to be able to pick up a story and almost always feel like I'm going to like it is a really good... I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if I could give you a better compliment than to say, I, I know I'm going to pick up the Kirsten Buyer Voyager book and it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you. You know, and so I, I, I appreciate that you put so much time in into these characters and I, I think all the readers do too because, you know, Voyager could be a book series that didn't sell well and they didn't have you working mm-hmm. on, you know, three books later. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so, but no, it, and, and you, you've, you've worked so hard and, and I just, I'm glad that people have responded the same way that I have. Yeah. And I, I know Dan has and, and Chris yeah, had yeah. as well. So it it's really, yeah. Thank you for giving <laughs> us welcome. the enjoyment. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. And actually, it's it's another sort of funny thing with this one is that a lot of the words that I get back are very simple this time around. It really is just like, thank you. And I do want people to know that that's more than enough and you are very welcome. Um, because I certainly get a lot out of doing the work that I do, you know, in terms of getting to figure stuff out that I need to work on. So, um, to, to be able to do it in this universe with these characters and, then I get paid on top of it. I mean, it just sort of all seems like, you know, wow, I'm lucky sometimes, you know. Living the dream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kirsten, um, I know that for you, you know, every every time we always kind of ask, um, is there anything else that besides Voyager that you've been working on uh, at all? And then, of course, um, I believe there's still only one place for people to find you online. But yeah. um, remind people where that is so that they can uh, interact with you. Yeah, if you uh, if you want to talk to me or have questions about anything that uh, I've done or you've read, um, the only place to ask those is really the the Trek BBS in the Star Trek Literature 
uh, sub forum. And I have been really bad uh, over the last several months about getting in there, and I feel awful about it. Um, but life has been a little bit fraught. So, um, But I, I still try to get in there as often as I can to answer people directly and specifically, since that's the only place to really do it. So, yeah, in terms of anything else that I'm working on, uh, no, once again, they, you know, asked me to write more books. So my plate for the next year or and a little bit more is now filled. And it's it's frustrating. I was just at shore leave back at the beginning of August. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you guys know what that is? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, apart from it being one weekend a year where I get to hang out with, you know, David Mack and Dayton and Kevin and, you know, Keith and all of my favorite truck riders and we all get to sort of commiserate and, you know, <laughs> bounce ideas <laughs> off of each other and all that stuff. Oh, and Chris Bennett as well, I have to say, because Chris, Chris is so incredibly helpful to me, not just in his own work, but um, in helping me um, simplify uh, very complex scientific ideas. And, I, and I, you know, I acknowledge him in pretty much every book I write, because in every book I write, there's always a moment where I'm like, oh, God damn it, Chris. and i write to him and i write my stupid question and he will write me pages back explaining the science and i'm like oh thank you so much so uh so i get i get to hang out with these guys and 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 enjoy ourselves um and also you know meet the readers and whatever um but also one of the treats is that almost every year i also get to hang out with marco palmieri who was Mm -hmm. my first editor at pocket and who has since moved on to tour books um so he is having a fabulous time um, discovering new science fiction authors in, who work in a number of different uh, ways and um, and has turned me on to two or three writers who I just absolutely adore now and pick up everything that they write as soon as it comes out. But this time in particular, I got to have a number of, of lengthy chats with Marco. And um, yeah, he is another person who is encouraging me to, um, you know, not leave Trek, but to move outside of Trek as well and do original stuff. And my only answer is, you know, I would love to were there more hours in the day. So, um, I, I expect that eventually I will carve out the time and make that happen. Um, I'm just not sure how soon. Well, I, you know, I know that that David Mack, you know, has, has finally gotten that opportunity and, you know, I'm so excited for him Mm -hmm. and for the work that you've done in Voyager. I, Honestly, I can't wait to see what you'd come up with as well. So I I hope that you will be able to to find that time because I I know for a writer, there's there's not much more that's rewarding than kind of being able to craft something that's completely your own, Mm -hmm. that you're in control of in every way, shape, and form, Mm -hmm. and just stretch yourself in in a whole new, you know, outlet. So, well, Kirsten, thank you so much uh, for being with us for so long on Literate Treks and always being so generous with your time, being a mother, being a working mother, and always coming on, uh, it means the world to us. And I know the listeners enjoy it because the episodes are always highly downloaded. So oh, cool. thank you for coming on. And, and I got to say, we can't wait to see what's going to be happening next uh, as the Voyager turns. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always love chatting with you guys. As I said, it's just nice to... Uh, talk with folks who care as much about the universe as I do and dig into it as deeply as I do. So I look forward to this every time I, a new book comes out. So Awesome. Well, it was a really great pleasure being able to, to finally talk to talk with you in person. So uh, And it was really nice that. to meet you too, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're welcome. 
Wow, Matthew, I have to say, uh, as far as author interviews go, that was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Kirsten Beyer is just a class act. That was a lot of fun. You know, when you come on the show and your first words out of your mouth are, hello there, and you <laughs> sound like a, a wonderful, you know, Hollywood star from the 40s, that's the way to start off an interview. And um, it's it's been such a great relationship with Kirsten. I There's nothing more that I've appreciated than the authors who have given us their time because I, I know it's precious and I really appreciate that so much. And so, uh, I'm yeah, I'm really glad that we got an opportunity to talk through her Voyager books. And, and I love that we got the opportunity to get a little bit personal for her, you know, and, and um, some of her favorite things she's gotten to write. Because, you know, that's one of the best parts of being an author and playing in this kind of sandbox. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, no, getting to hear her insights into the characters and, and yeah, like you said, her very personal experiences in, in writing this. I mean, that's the whole reason we get the authors on to talk about their work. So it was, it was just a treat. Well, before we let everybody go, I wanted to get the opportunity to thank a few people that we have here through Patreon, and uh, they support our show every single week, and I'm, I'm so excited to be able to, to thank these guys, Will Win and Ken Tripp, and I really appreciate their support through Patreon each week, and it's, it's through Patreon that you can help the network and shows like Literary Treks and all the shows we do on the network keep coming to you. We are a listener-supported network. through people like Will Wynn and Ken Tripp, who are the associate producers here on the show. They've gone to patreon.com slash trekfm and seen how they could help make sure that content like Literary Treks or any of the other shows, like I said, on the network keep coming to you regularly each week. Make sure you do that for us because without you guys, we can't keep bringing this great content to you. And we have a blast getting to talk to the authors and review the books and the comics for you guys and all the other things we do on Trek FM. And we do it for you and we really appreciate your support. So just go to patreon.com slash Trek FM and see how you can help be part of the team today. Of course, don't forget that we're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM, as are all our shows. You can find us at Trek.FM. And, of course, we'd love to have any kind of feedback from you guys. So hit us up on Twitter at TrekFM or Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM, the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group, our Goodreads group. Or, of course, you could just send us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar on the show page or go to SpeakPipe.com slash TrekFM. Now, Dan, when you're not spending time with Barkley in the holodeck trying not to get found out of whatever program you're running there these days, uh, where can we find you? I, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Matthew. <laughs> um, now, I'm, I'm never on the holodeck. In, in fact, I'm, I'm only ever online. Uh, my website is www.treklet.com. And on that website, I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekletreviews uh, and on Twitter at trekletreviews. And my other Twitter handle uh, is at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And I'm on Instagram at Kurtrats47. And uh, Matthew, when you're not setting up elaborate sting operations to bring down some doctor who's doing some crazy experiments, where can we find you? 
you know, Dan, it takes a lot of time, actually, to take him down. But uh, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me on The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively. You can find me on The 602 Club, where we're talking about a great new geeky topic each week. Uh, Something new, something old, something borrowed, something blue. (laughs) We just love bringing something to you each week uh, that maybe you haven't even tried. So check out The 602 Club. It's a lot of fun. And then you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com, which if you have the new iOS update, iOS 9, you can find the news app, and my blog is there. And you could just search 42 and you can put it in your news feed and check everything out that I, I have written. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number 